look, I don't have the votes, okay? We did the math, all right? <laughs> right. I don't have the left arm, okay? We did the math. I just got one of them, right. okay? Yeah. I request an election by duel, formal <laughs> request for election by duel, but they, they didn't understand that he was ready, ripping, and roaring to get on that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unbelievable. I am WD-40 expert Kurt Danner, joined here by shipwrecked pirate Luis Mejia, and today, it is the season finale. Once again, this is the end of season two. The score is 10 to 5. That means that I either fooled Luis or correctly guessed Luis's story 10 times. Luis did not that 10 times. So here we are. And just out of interest, Luis, I wonder if you ever wonder about how much we have talked just like in total, you know, how, how much just pointless stuff we have said that people may or may not have listened to. On the podcast or just us generally in, in life? Oh, on the podcast. I couldn't calculate in general. That that would be That's true. We, we, we've spoken just too much nonsense throughout our, our time knowing each other. Mm. But no, Kurt, what, mm. what do, you, do you have? Do you have the, the data? Do you have the info? I do. I have I have the numbers in front of me here. And, you know, I will say also, we must be meant to be to be besties because this season <laughs> we both hosted for a total of 640 something minutes. Oh, my. Goodness. So right around the 640 minute mark. Wow. Also, let's not forget uh, way back in the beginning of this season, we had some guest episodes our guests hosted for a total of 115 minutes shout out to our guests that feels so long that, ago now doesn't it not that i mean that was probably over a year ago now wasn't it yeah it's kind of wild and lastly perhaps the the most staggering statistic here i fooled luis five times this season mm-hmm. luis fooled me one time nice nice hell yeah hell yeah i like that <laughs> which is of course how we've ended up now in in this situation where where today uh we will have some true tales and then we will have a little quiz which will decide Luis's punishment and my reward for winning season two. You see, Kurt, I, I see it this way. Sure, maybe I fooled you less times, but maybe I've grown to trust you a little more. Maybe I, maybe I, I want to, to grow a deeper friendship with you, Kurt, and you're just holding yourself off. You're just not letting that door be opened. I'm just not opening up. You just took the high road on me. I, you know, <laughs> that's what I got to do. This is the only way I can justify <laughs> this, this just egregious defeat. But my goodness, over 640 minutes each, you said? Yeah. Wow, everyone is a thousand and, tw- and what is it? A thousand and 80 minutes dumber in their lives because of us. So, <laughs> hey, uh, to to all of you that listen to Sorry. Us, yeah, to all of you that listen to us uh, and have for the last year or so, big apologies, our sincerest apologies. We are, we, we did what we could. Sorry and you're welcome. Exactly. So hopefully our, our attempts to, to spread misinformation across the internet and make you just a little dumber, maybe it worked. Because I certainly do feel a little dumber. We're dumber. Oh, oh we're oh, way. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, absolutely. This has been so detrimental to us. <laughs> I think that's probably the, the best part of people that have been long listeners of this podcast. They, they can just see the, the decline in, in, in any sort of cognitive capacity. That's so true. Um, and I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. Everyone's on this train together with us, just seeing us and watching us and listening to us just get dumber as the days go on. Yes. This podcast has been like a big stew that our brains are in. And people are watching us just slowly dissolve and melt together into nothingness and chicken broth. <laughs> that is true. That is true. We're, we're all just swirling around in this big old pot that we have no idea what's being made in there. And we, and frankly, we don't want to know. Uh, but everyone's along for the ride and everyone's really hungry. So you're going to eat anyway. So that's so true. That's what we're grateful for. So thank you, everyone that has listened in the past uh, season. Mm, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And also, why are you still here? Respectfully, of course. <laughs> 
Thank you and get help. Yeah, but in, in, in our efforts to get help, Kurt, I think we, we, we have some some stories to tell. At the end of the day, that's what we do in this show. So I believe we've, we've prepared some stories for you. This time, we are telling some true tales of history. Usually, we lie mm-hmm. to each other. One of the stories we always tell is false. However, this time, because we're feeling benevolent, because we're feeling generous, and frankly, we don't want to think too much, <laughs> which should be the subtitle of this podcast, mm. we, we have opted to, to tell you some really, really fun, fascinating history from uh, actual world in real life events. Yes. Some, some stories from the archives that maybe were ruled out of being used on the podcast for whatever reason. But before we get to that, Luis, let's talk about some stories that we told in the past we've got to okay. got to give out some some awards some superlatives oh, okay I'm okay in. yeah but before before even we get to that Luis, we had a little cheers at the end of our season one finale do you want to should we take a little shot to close out season two? Oh man is it is it, is it our time is it what? Yeah, it's it's time to, to send off season two, and then we can we can reminisce a little bit on the the stories we told. By the way, I'm going to take a shot of some very fancy tequila gifted to me from Luis and his father. So shout out Don Jorge. In stark contrast, I'm going to be drinking tamarind vodka. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> real yin and yang situation, really you know. <laughs> uh, so Curtis, for our season two, full of laughs and full of just great fun. This one goes out to you, Kurt, and all of you listening. So, salud. Cheers. Oh, Christ. Ugh. So, tell me, Luis, I've been dying to know, up up at night wondering, what is your favorite true story that I have told you from this season? I mean, there's so many. You know, this is a little difficult for me because as we've established previously in this in this show, Kurt, I don't know how my brain operates most of the time, but what I do know from it is that every single time I do something, I forget about it as soon as it's over. A lot of my my ex-girlfriends hate me for that matter. Um, Just kidding. That's a joke. A lot of his current girlfriends, too. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, speaking of that, Kurt, actually, you you did ask me this not too long ago. And and I had to go back to all our episodes and remind myself of things that that we have talked about. But I can tell you, really, one thing that did stick in my head since you said it, was from uh, the true story of the endless hunger of the Frenchman who just, mm. oh, could not stop eating. Terrar, the man who was so hungry, he would and did eat anything that was put in front of him. <laughs> Genuinely, if it was edible, he'll give it a shot. And if it's not edible, he'll probably try it once. Yeah, I know. And like, <laughs> and, and this, of course, is from the story The Malified Monk Monopoly and An Endless Hunger. Mm. But I, I just, I cannot stop thinking of this, Kurt. There, there's something about a very hungry man that is just really nice. You know. Yeah. Also, there's there was this this really there's there's really lovely detail at the beginning of the beginning of that story where you mentioned that he was just so stinky, just just incredibly stinky. When he ate, yeah, his stench would be so terrible that they there was this quote that said he could not be endured from within a distance of twenty paces when he ate. Insane that he's his man is like a bioweapon. Yeah, this is the coolest and and stupidest superpower, and I really respect him for this. <laughs> uh, so that was nice. Just a- activates. <laughs> smell mm. you know mm. that's nice that that makes me happy that makes me and so that's that, that's why i think it's the, of, of all the stories you've told kurt that one has a very very special place in my heart well kurt now that you've asked me what about you what is your favorite true story i've, I've told plenty some could say 640 minutes worth <laughs> and counting <laughs> exactly yeah 
I would have to say the favorite true story that you've told me in my mind would be the Crusader tax from the Crusader tax and the accidental compass discovery. Uh, the story of Richard the Lionheart figuring out how to fund just <laughs> endless crusades. And then this whole scheme of like people are buying and selling this man and repeatedly raising money. It was it was a story that while I, I don't think it fooled me, I was like just so happy to learn it because, you know, we all know that the world is really weird. But mm-hmm. I think that was one of those moments where I was like, wow, it's even a little weirder than I thought. Like, and right. also that back in history, people weren't always like, you know, stuffy according to the rules. Like they were just as weird then as they right. are now. And their lives were just as weird then. My favorite thing about these types of stories is uh, when we talk about fiscal irresponsibility and how something as quotidian or something as standard as tax collection has just been a thing for such a long, long time. And there's always been people that have complained about it. And there's always been people that have been trying to take advantage of that system. (laughs) And I I find it, I find it fascinating. And that's, I think, why, why I really like that story. You've always got this politician saying, hey guys, we need more taxes to do whatever we want. And you guys are screwed, which is awesome. Like, that's just funny. I mean, it's not awesome that it happens, but it's, it's just so funny that it's happened over and over and over throughout history. Yeah. Uh, if 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 you'll if you'll allow me this, Kurt, I, I went on t- uh, to the British Museum not too long ago, and in the British Museum there was a Egypt exhibit. Naturally, right? What else is, is the British? How did Museum? that get yeah, there? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Walked up and got there, but I found that there 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 were some clay tablets of people. There was a tradition back in ancient Egypt where people would write clay tablets to their dead ancestors. Oh yeah, and. Would, say, would would tell them essentially the the issues or things that they're facing currently a as a way to kind of unwind and then throw out all the evil in the world but also to ask the ancestors for help mm. and looking around this exhibit i found that there was one clay tablet that said oh yeah it was someone being really upset that taxes have gotten really high lately <laughs> dated from like 1500 bc and i'm just it's so funny that we've always been the same and we will continue yeah, to be the same yeah right? really that's really the the funniest thing in my mind about that story it's it's funny in a way that's really true to life because if you look into the details it's like this weird complicated story of richard the lionheart really wanting to go off to war and then he goes and gets failed so badly that he's getting sold off yeah. and bought and blah yeah. blah blah but then the if you just like the overarching story is that there's a big conflict because people are mad about paying taxes to fund a war over and over and that's like just every day life you know yeah that's i love that story i really do and and that leads to the magna carta yeah yeah that people were so mad about paying taxes that they forced the king to give them rights for like exactly the first time in their history <laughs> <laughs> they said we will never do anything else unless you give us a document saying you can't do this again <laughs> and and somehow it worked somehow it worked so we've talked about true stories Luis. let's let's look at the other side of the coin here what is your favorite false story that i have told you oh my goodness what's, what's my my best lie you know i i'm going to to tell you that this is what i consider to be my favorite false story not just because i think it's really good which it is i i, I frankly think all of your false stories are, are pretty pretty good always big kiss big hug Thank you. but i i this is one that got someone 
in the Mejia family really angry at you. Oh. So this is this is a story that uh, got my sister really mad at at you for it being a false story. And that is the stolen prototype, <laughs> right? So the stolen proto- <laughs> pr- prototype, which if I if I recall correctly, this was from the stolen prototype and demon dog possession. And it, for those of you who do not recall, this is the story about how the Lumiere brothers essentially did not invent the the camera, right? It was invented by <laughs> by this woman somewhere in where was it? Like North England? She no, she was in New Orleans and her New name Orleans, was right. Lemay Germain. Right. And she didn't want to be a married off debutante. She she was inventing all kinds of crazy things in her rich person house. And one of them was an invention that the Lumiere brothers stole away and used to make into a video camera eventually. So that story that story in its own is really good. It's really fun because because uh, you you got these moments where we're talking about the Lumiere brothers and 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 this woman, and then we're talking about the future, current times, how her descendants have also not been able to get the receipts for for her inventing the camera, and there's been like a legal fight ever since. So that was just a really good story. But my sister comes up to me about a month, I think, or two after the episode comes out. She got around to listening to it, and she says, "Luis, I am." I've been unreasonably angry today. I'm like, why? What's up? I listened to this story and I was banking that it was the real correct one. And frankly, I thought it'd be really, really cool for it to be real because, you know, hell yeah. (laughs) You know, that's awesome. Yeah. And yet you essentially brought her whole world down with that story being (laughs) false, which to me is a very funny thing to see my sister (laughs) such riled up about this story. But uh, again, it just goes to show just how, how good of a story it was and how good of a storyteller you were with that story and, and that's what I why I really thank you you know I think that's that's part of the fun of this podcast that not only do we get to mm-hmm. kind of stretch out our, our researching arms but also get to I don't know try something new and you told that story like enough for my sister to still to this day be pissed <laughs> so you know I think I think there's something interesting in there because I remember kind of coming up with the first part of there's this you know stolen invention that leads to the camera and I thought the story kind of needed a part two and I was thinking about how a lot of times when we're studying true history about these things that someone was really done wrong in the past we kind of think that like it ends there but a lot of times for like the descendants of these people if there was never sure. justice or whatever yeah. this is still something that stays with them or that they think about i think this has been a lot on my mind recently because i've been uh, reading the book killers of the flower moon uh oh, in, nice, in yeah. anticipation of the movie coming out if anybody if you've seen the movie you should definitely read the book too because it also talks a lot about how like this wasn't over when the case was solved this uh this series of murders led to intergenerational trauma and so that was like kind of a fun thing about that story that you get to see people like vindicated where you know they they don't really i guess get the justice for it like a major main who allegedly got her invention stolen never gets the justice but her descendants get their their revenge you know they the truth finally comes out so it's like really satisfying i think to see someone get that win and then have it pulled out from under you but that's that's showbiz on this podcast baby. <laughs> i was gonna I, I was gonna say that would be satisfying and cathartic if it wasn't fake <laughs> you know? yeah if it wasn't all a lie <laughs> <laughs> remember how you felt good about the world for once yeah sorry that's not how history works most never of the happened time. Never <laughs> happened. <laughs> keep dreaming kid <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well kurt have i i mean i know i didn't fool you much this podcast but you, mu- you must have something that I, that must have impressed you at some point yeah yeah you know i i enjoy the the art of the performance Luis. i'll tell you uh, my mm-hmm. favorite false story from you is the ethiopian sheep quake oh yeah uh this was from the kentucky meat shower in the ethiopian sheep quake and you know i still specifically remember one of the details that really really got 
got me on this one was that so a, a big part of the story was that these people thought there were routine earthquakes happening that were actually just large herds of sheep and these there were like these sensors in the ground that were detecting the the vibrations from the sheep right and you improvised the detail when telling me that also when they installed the sensors they like didn't screw them in all the way so they were even like loose <laughs> and that detail felt so real that i think that alone just hooked me into yeah. believing it completely so that that was such a, an amazing part but you know there are even other parts of that story like this whole end of the world post-apocalyptic anticipating earthquake cult that developed mm -hmm. in the wake of like scientists who know how to read the data properly that was just a story that was super fun start to finish and and additionally uh, even though it was just so wild i really had a hard time thinking about like could this have happened or not right. yeah. so yeah i mean it was just one of those stories where i was like wow no notes Luis. that one that one just hit me like a train thank you <laughs> like a stampede of sheep frankly yeah causing major earthquakes in ethiopia <laughs> yeah well so i think that that Covers, you know, our obvious ones of the favorite true and false story. Now let's get to to uh, some some superlatives here, okay? Ooh. Tell me, Luis, what is the scariest story from the season in your mind? And when I say scariest, I mean as in it's a true story that you kind of wish weren't true because now you have to live mm -hmm. with that knowledge that it's out there in the world. Yeah, so, so I had to think about this a, a little bit, Kurt, because, I mean, we always say that we really wish all these stories were real. Like every single time we talk about these stories, we're like, this would be great great if it was real, right? However, the one that really cost me such, I don't know, repulsion, I don't know if that's the word, but it, it got to the point where I had almost forgotten this story was ever told in the first place. <laughs> and that is the Forbidden Slice story, which is from oh, our Halloween slice. special, our last Halloween special, where we talked about the mm -hmm. Cambridge Killer and the Forbidden Slice, Yeah, which uh, for those of you who do not recall, it's about this man who was an author uh, slash med student slash restaurant critic who, <laughs> you know, he decided to think outside the box once and try uh, the, 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 the forbidden fruit. A little bit of the long pig. Yeah, got <laughs> the four-legged, four-legged pig. <laughs> four-legged pig. Wait, hold on. What? <laughs> hold on. Never mind. Behold, a man. <laughs> uh, uh, oh man, we got, <laughs> we're not even into the true tales yet, and this is already getting so incoherent. <laughs> But you were saying, Luis, <laughs> about eating human flesh. Please yeah, go on. So this person was eating human flesh. And, and I, if I remember correctly, I listened to the episode not too long ago, which once more surprises me. Just I, I make myself laugh in, that, in, the, in our episodes. I'm like, I said that? Wow, good work. But I was listening to it and I realized that I was cracking a lot of jokes about cannibalism that episode. But to be fair, it was mostly me coping with the fact that I was uncomfortable with that story. Yeah, I, I definitely remember that was one of the episodes where I, you would say something. And I was like, Really? You want that on a recording? All right, here we go. <laughs> listen, listen, we, we got to put it all out, lay it all out for, for you fine folks listening at home. So be it. Um, but yeah, no, that scared me, especially since the story ends with you saying, oh yeah, he's still out there, still just yeah. chilling at you home. You know what though? There's a weird little footnote about that, that like two months after we released the podcast, oh, he died because he was an older man. Right. And by the way, just for anybody who doesn't remember the episode or didn't listen to it, he tried to cut a piece off one woman and eat it. And he basically got a slap on the wrist for that. Mm -hmm. And then he later killed 
a woman and ate her and was caught fully red-handed doing that. Literally. Yeah, they caught him, like, with a suitcase full of body parts. Yeah. He ultimately served, like, a few years of prison, and then that was it, and just basically got released back into public life. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so that that was even another weird detail that he passed away. Because that was, I think, kind of the scary part is that, like, this guy is, you know, still out there in the world. This isn't necessarily, like, a story in the past. This is a story that, you know, maybe is still happening. Yeah. So he somehow managed to make it even more spooky. I, I yeah, I mean, no words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no no words for that one. <laughs> no words, no words. Go back and listen to the episode and, and listen to me try to yeah. justify cannibalism. Um it's, it's a mm-hmm. it's a wild ride. All right, Kurt. So what about you? What's the, what's the scariest story? The story you you are you 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 hoped was fake. Yeah. Well, you know, in this case, it was actually a story I researched because I picked uh, the story Eternal Blue, Mm. which was the story of how the NSA discovered this huge flaw in Microsoft systems that would leave them open to all kinds of virus attacks, basically every Microsoft user in the world. And instead of notifying them about it, they weaponized it and then it got stolen from them and ended up getting out into the wild. And it was basically just by dumb luck, near miss and a handful of very dedicated citizens that the whole internet world and economic world didn't collapse in on itself one day because of that so that was just terrifying to learn because all this is like you know secret government information that comes out after the fact so i'm like what if another one of these is happening right now and we wouldn't even find out about if we're on the brink of this or not so yeah i guess it's even scary if you're a microsoft user you know you could just get attacked by a virus at any moment maybe maybe the nsa knows knows another flaw dude i'm a a microsoft user and the nsa already knows everything i'm doing and they're probably terrified uh (laughs) probably concerned it's not even the nsa i'm worried about it's that it's that the nsa will will you know weaponize whatever flaws they find but then apparently they themselves don't have good enough cybersecurity to not get hacked into listen kurt (laughs) like i've always said on this podcast whenever we talk about ignorance being bliss we underestimate bliss that's so true let's just be happy let's just chill that's so you know what you're so right you're so right until our computers get weaponized for i don't know destroying the planet then yeah i'm gonna sit down and watch like 15 episodes of parks and rec on my computer absolutely i don't care absolutely you know what yeah i let's take that to heart okay the the uh escaped or released cannibal guy has passed away yeah and as we woke up this morning all of our microsoft computers work so it's gonna yeah. be a good day yeah, and exactly. i think in the spirit of bliss Luis, yeah let's let's go to the other side of it okay most disappointing story story that you were hoping was real oh. that ended up not being real i know if it's if it's your sister we're talking about in the mix we're gonna get the, the stolen prototype again but but for yeah, you probably. what's your choice well you know i'm glad kurt i'm glad that you mentioned the eternal blue story because this actually is from the same episode the our sci-fi skynet themed episode that you chose for us and that was the sound ghost story i don't know if y'all recall the sound ghost story Klingeist. exactly I don't know if y'all remember this, but there. So, so one of the stories that Kurt told during that uh, three-parter AI story was about the Sound Ghost, which was a essentially an AI that was able to take in a whole lot of a whole lot of different composers' music and synthesize something new and yeah. synthesize just new compositions. An AI that could write new compositions that would be 
similar to the works of unknown German composers, but yeah. would be distinctly new. That was really, that was really, really cool. Of these, like, okay, these old German composers never got the fame they desired or they could have gotten, and now they're being kind of, mm-hmm. I guess, in a way, torn apart and put back together, but in a in a really interesting way. It's kind of, it's kind of like historical preservation meets AI, and that was kind of neat for me. Yeah, to the point where I recall, where in that episode, I was visibly upset or vocally upset I guess that it wasn't real because I'm like I I would so be involved in a project like that it was you know that was a really cruel one because I even played like some some orchestra music for you and asked you to try to guess which one was AI generated just gonna say this yeah I knew that you just like enjoyed being present for that so I was like man this is gonna crush him to know that this never happened it's so cursed and so classically German how could Luis not love it exactly I mean I mean to the point that I can I can recite that entire episode episode even though that happened over six months ago <laughs> and in this podcast where i generally tend to forget everything that happened so it's, right. it still sticks with me and and think about it fairly often so that's okay you know i think i'm ready to move past it this is my moment to to bury it deep into the ground <laughs> you lay it to rest now uh, yeah yeah for the moment well what about you kurt what, what, what is the most i guess disappointing story you've, you've heard yeah let me let me get it off my chest too we'll, we'll lay it to rest mm-hmm. i would have to go with the secret hippocampus blood formula yeah because this is the story where it was you know there was a lot going on in there but ultimately we got up to connecting the dots that the secret ingredient in the chemical wd-40 is this ancient thing maybe from the silk road called hippocampus blood or some yeah. other strange ingredient from the old world there is the formula of wd-40 is secret because it was something that was developed to be used for for a different purpose and then ended up being used as a commercial product but i always had this dream that like ooh, what if it was some bizarre chemical in there like they've got like eel blood in there or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. so i think maybe that was a little bit of inspiration for the story and y- you know this one actually was a really tough choice to pick one because like i was talking about before with the ethiopian sheep quake and you spinning out this like post-apocalyptic cult there's so many of these stories that you tell me that I'm like, oh man, I even when I know it's false, I really wish that like the world was different. But I'm not gonna lie, I really wish that the secret ingredient in WD40 was something called hippocampus blood that was traded yeah. on the Silk Road. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I think I think that that's also a story where like whenever it it, it, it ends, it doesn't show us a bad world. It doesn't end poorly. It's just a, a good fun story. That's true. And we always like those stories that don't happen often. So, sadly, history as we found in this podcast <laughs> and all. Oh, always the false really ones for bad, some reason. <laughs> yeah, always always takes a terribly bad turn. But the false ones always seem to be the happy ones. We tried to te- we tried to to think of a better world <laughs> in in the midst of of all this chaos and if that means believing that hippocampus blood is in WD40, well that's very special. So be it. So be it. We we choose to live in a more magical world on this podcast. Okay, so lastly, Luis, this one, you know, we we've got the the title name on here. Mm-hmm. What is the most unbelievable story from this season so a true story that just didn't seem real you just thought like there's no way this could have been i gotta go back to my main man terrar with the endless hunger i i swear man like wow this... hang on let me let me cut let me cut in i all oh, that's mine too i was seriously? like this can't be that, like, <laughs> yeah <come> seriously <laughs> especially when you started saying that like when he got so hungry he started eating the cutlery in front of him i'm like come on no of course not. Yeah. Why is he eating forks? But I th- yeah, and it, but it's more of like this idea of like, oh, he cannot resist himself. He's going to eat anything that's in front of him. 
Like he, he can't physically cannot, cannot not get stinky. You know, he's like, it's stink time. I'm going to eat my weight in beef. Right. Yeah. And don't forget at the end of that story, I actually told you about another person who was very similar to Tarar with the things they would eat and the amounts they would eat, who lived in the, almost the same time period as Tarar and fought in the same war, both on the opposite side from Tarar and on the same side. So they almost had like these parallel lives, both of them with this just bizarre ability to like eat an amount of food or edible slash inedible things that just baffled and terrified everyone. So it was even more than just like one time it happened. It was like yeah. two times, like right on top. Yeah, and, and like it just goes to show, just France in what was like 1700s, crazy place, crazy Back place. In the like day. anything, anything Loose. went. Yeah, everything, everyone went crazy, and it didn't matter. Which awesome, I like that a lot. So that that is probably my most unbelievable story. No, it's gotta be. I mean, there, whenever you t- were telling it, I, I was like, no, there's no, th- there's no way. I was so much willing to believe that people would put monks in honey you know <laughs> oh yeah the mellified monk story that went with it was was very fun too I, you know that was another one where i was like this almost feels cruel because i know Luis is just gonna love so much the idea of that you're gonna preserve a dead monk in honey yeah. and then eat yeah. him a hundred years like that's just got Luis's name written all over it and i mean that as a compliment no i'll take it as most a compliment. people probably won't hear it like that but i no, do mean no <laughs> kurt kurt's one of the people that knows me best in this world he knows he knows the things that I enjoy. <laughs> and one of them is, is yes, the truth that I, I would try a, a honeyed man. Who knows? I know, I know the, the terror you feel of a man who will eat his own body weight in beef and cats yeah. and then fall asleep who cannot be endured within a distance of 20 paces from a smell. And I also know your love of a little honey candied monk who could possibly be made into some mead. You know, that that was where the, the real hook line is. That's true. Was. I was like, hey, anyone trying to ferment this man? Who knows? Ladies and gentlemen, may I ask fermentation? <laughs> okay, Luis, shall we get to some true tales, some, some stories from the archives that were mayhaps destined or intended for the podcast, but ultimately didn't make the cut. I think so, Kurt. I'm down. I'm ready. Well, I've got a story that's pretty fun that I want to tell you. The reason why it didn't ultimately make it in is because it takes place in World War One, And, I, you know, I just feel like me telling you about some events that happened in World War One, you're going to be like, okay, I know that probably happened. Yeah. So this was unfortunately a little bit too well known. But here's a, a little piece of advice that I have for you, Luis. And please take this to heart, okay? Never ask a man his salary, a woman her age, or a Canadian Corps soldier what he did in World War I. Oh my okay. god, okay. Because <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> All right. It's hilarious because, you know, the stereotype of Canadians is luckily like very good. Everybody thinks, you know, they're really nice and friendly yeah. people. In World War One, different story. All right. Before I get into this, everybody, of course, knows a lot about World War One, but just some things to remind you of here. World War One, pretty much a bad time for everyone. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nothing really went according to plan the whole time. And also because of the time period that it took place in, there was this big change in warfare in this time period. What used to be dominated by firing lines and cannons and cavalry charges had now been replaced by tanks, armored vehicles, planes, bombs, submarines, barbed wire, heavy artillery, machine guns, and chemical weapons. Horses with guns. 
Don't forget about horses with and guns. Hor- there were horses with guns? Well, okay. Wait, how did that work? Well, okay, never mind. It was less horses with guns. It was just like men carrying rifles on top of horses. Like, that was just cool. That's just an upgraded cavalry charge. But speaking of the horses, I actually was going to say that I always find it really interesting that World War One is the only conflict in which horses needed gas masks so they could still cavalry I was going to say that. I love that. I love horse gas masks. Yeah. Oh, uh, we're a big hug, big kiss, big my hug, dude. Big Come kiss. on. Yeah, we were just we, thinking we're about the same thing. up late at night looking up pictures of the horses wearing gas masks. We're all in it together. Who, you're not? <laughs> I am. <laughs> anyway, suffice to say that during the war, no one really felt like they were winning. After the war, no one really felt like they had won. It was a very terrible experience for everyone all around, it seems. Okay. So August 14th, 1914, the United Kingdom declared war on Germany. And because Canada was still a British dominion, they were automatically entered into the war with the United Kingdom. Canada would ultimately deploy 620,000 soldiers to fight the German army in France during the duration of the war. And this was actually the first creation of a distinctly Canadian unit. So basically, it's like nice. Canada's first time at war, you know, their first little baby yeah, steps. At war. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That's nice. My first world war. My first world war. And everybody else's too, so it's good timing. The Canadian Corps fought in numerous battles in France, and over time, they developed a reputation for being, quote-unquote, the Allied shock troopers. Nice. Basically, like, they're extra hard to kill and really scary. In fact, if Germany could find out which part of the Allied line the Canadian troops are defending through intel or whatever, they would put extra reinforcements and troops on that part. (laughs) And this actually led to some kind of funny deception plans of tricking the Germans about where the Canadians were at through, like, some fake documents and whatnot, you know, the usual stuff. Where the hell are the Canadians? (laughs) Where are the Canadians? Tell me now tell me never. (laughs) The Canadian Corps fought at Ypres in April 1915 when the German army deployed chlorine gas for the first time. 160 tons of it on the first time they deployed it, in fact. Chlorine gas is a yellowish-green gas that would be released from large canisters and carried on the wind to enemy lines. In low concentrations, it causes coughing, vomiting, and severe eye irritation. And in high concentrations, and by high concentrations, I mean, like, enough that it actually gets into your lungs, it would react with the water in your lungs to form hydrochloric acid, which... is toxic to human tissues so this would always cause rapid death or at the very least permanent lung damage the first chlorine gas attack at ypres killed 1100 soldiers and when the gas reached the french lines troops began rapidly fleeing leaving a six kilometer hole in the lines canadian troops remained despite the gas and fought all through the night slowly closing the gap in the morning the german army released more chlorine gas this time directed directly at the canadian line but instead of retreating 1600 canadian troops mounted a counterattack in the gap created by the gas which ultimately turned into an impromptu bayonet charge into some wooded areas, Mm -hmm. killing 75% of the Germans in the area. Oh, God. (laughs) This was not the end of this battle, but this is a good example of what it was like to fight against Canadian soldiers and how terrifying it was. And then when you get to December 1915, German and Canadian troops were still huddled in the same trenches at Ypres. So the previous year, in 1914, there had been this tradition of the Christmas truce. This is when in 1914 in World War I, before Canadian troops had joined the war there had been a ceasefire temporarily on christmas day where soldiers exchanged gifts and you know played a little soccer whatever so presumably the german soldiers thought that this would happen again in 1915 um assuming the tradition was going to be upheld some german soldiers poked their heads up above the trench waved around a box of cigars and were calling out merry christmas canadians damn it one canadian sergeant did not like this very much so he shot and killed two of the german soldiers the german line then returned fire killing a british soldier 
And all of this pretty much ended any chance of Christmas celebrations for that year. Damn. As you can see, the way the Canadians kind of do business here is like a very all-out war strategy. That kind of seems to be their philosophy here. And one really good example of this is there were stories that Canadian troops would throw tin cans of beef over into enemy trenches. When they would hear hungry German soldiers gathering around and yelling for them to throw more cans, they would throw over grenades, oh. which is just really cruel. They also had uh, a reputation for killing prisoners that they took or... Or most German soldiers that surrendered or were captured would be killed. And this in particular made the German army both hate and fear Canadian troops because that's, you know, really terrifying to be fighting against an enemy that you think will kill you even sure, if you surrender. Yeah. In my mind, however, the most terrifying thing Canada <laughs> did were night raids. Okay. Luis, are you familiar at all with trench raiding? Uh, I, I think I can kind of decipher the meaning of it from, from the word. So when people would just like go into trenches in surprise and try to, to kill as many people as they could? Yeah, let me let me lay out the, the details for you here. So under the cover of darkness, 50 to 200 men would quietly sneak across no man's land. That's the area in between the trenches. They would sneak across that to the enemy trenches and locate enemy troops on guard by looking for light from a cigarette or listening for muffled conversation. Then quickly stab or beat the guards to death to minimize noise. Then they would run through the enemy trench, stabbing sleeping soldiers, throwing grenades, taking prisoners and destroying things. And the purpose of this was not to gain any territory because uh, obviously at the end they leave and generally these would be pretty short about 30 minutes or less more this the purpose of this was just to kill some enemy soldiers and demoralize the enemy just to basically terrify them yikes generally this would then result in night raids in retaliation from the enemy a couple nights later and sometimes these raids could be extremely effective because they kind of have the element of surprise but pretty often trench raids would be as deadly to the raiders as they were to enemy soldiers so as many sure. of the people who are perpetrating the raids are getting killed as they are killing soldiers. This is also, of course, terrifying for all parties involved to be in this spontaneous knife fight in the dark, right? So unsurprisingly, soldiers were more and more reluctant to go on trench raids until they were mostly phased out of most armies, except for Canada. Oh, of course, here comes the Canadians. Canada said, oh, oh baby, yeah. the sweet, sweet trench raid. Give us some more of that. They loved this business, okay? In fact, they kind of really revolutionized it. So here's some additions that Canada made to trench raiding. Oh my god. Canadians wore thick rubber gloves and painted their faces with pieces of burnt cork for maximum stealth. They crafted homemade pipe bombs and grenade catapults. They also would use a variety of homemade knives, spiked clubs, and meat cleavers. And when other armies began phasing out night raids, Canada actually did the opposite and ramped them up until they were deploying raids of up to 900 men, sometimes on a nightly oh, basis. Jeez. Can you imagine being across from the Canadians and every single night, 900 men are flooding your trench My and stabbing God, people to man. death? Oh, that's terrible. Terrifying. Even though these attacks were really fast, as I said before, usually less than 30 minutes, Canadian raids could penetrate up to a kilometer past enemy lines and surprise soldiers. So even soldiers who were far from enemy lines could be subjected to getting killed by this. Canadians actually, in fact, got so good at night raids that the few remaining night raiders and other armies were eventually retrained and given new tactics by the Canadians. Now, through all this, Luis, you might be wondering, why in the world is Canada so mad about this? Why are they being yeah, so brutal? Yeah. Because interestingly, you know, the Canadian soldiers would be one of the few armies who are not even defending their homeland in this situation. Oh, sure, you know, they're fighting yeah. someone else's war completely. Right, yeah. Another interesting little point is that they were extremely brutal to German soldiers, but there's almost no accounts of Canadians mistreating civilians, which is pretty unlike a lot of the other armies. So there's a few reasons that are kind of speculated as to why Canada decided to just go 
go full hardcore on this. One is that there was this story that German soldiers had crucified a Canadian soldier and left him nailed to a barn door to die. This story is generally considered by historians to be false, but it was kind of semi slash widely believed at the time. So yeah. maybe this is one of the reasons for the anger. Another reason is that Canadian troops were usually sent in first or assigned to the most deadly situations. You know, it's kind of one of the many perks of being being a uh, British Dominion, I guess, is that you're always the tip of the spear. Right. Yeah. But this results in a lot of anecdotes from Canadian soldiers like the Germans killed half my company and then tried to surrender. And I was not really feeling like accepting the surrender at that point. <laughs> so, you know, it's not really to justify this, but it's just to say maybe they were in these situations where they're getting very hardened to combat and to the nature of combat and the realities of it. There's also, of course, tons of stories of horrific German atrocities. And then on top of the true ones, there's, of course, more propaganda that they would have been hearing. There's also a theory that maybe the Canadian Corps never forgave the German army for their first use of poison gas back in 1915, which hit oh. the Canadian unit the hardest. This is back when they, yeah. they were in Ypres and ended up doing the bayonet charge. Right, yeah. Now, Luis, I have saved the most impressive for last. Okay. Can I tell you about Canada's 100 days? <laughs> Please. I, I would like nothing more, Kurt. <laughs> so if you don't know, the 100 Days Offensive is the series of Allied victories over the last 96 days of the war that pushed the German army back to the lines of basically where they had started at the beginning of the war. Basically, the last 100 days of the war, the Allies had a whole bunch of wins, and it pushed things to such a point where it resulted in the war ending. Right. However, during this time, the Canadian Corps was insane. So much so that they have like their own specific little piece of history called Canada. Canada's 100 days. Okay. Around 100,000 Canadian soldiers spearheaded attacks at the Battle of Emion, the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Scar, the Battle of Canal du Nord, the Battle of Cambrai, the Battle of the Selle, the Battle of Valenciennes, and at Mont. Your French is impressive. Thank you. I'm, I'm trying a little bit. I'm yeah, practicing. That's yeah, probably that's like 60% well. accurate there. Point is, they were involved in like a whole bunch of battles. And you probably recognize a bunch of those names as being like super major battles. All of those, they were the tip of the spear. Right. During this time, the Canadian Corps fought and defeated or sent retreating 47 German divisions, which adds up to one fourth of the entire German forces faced by Allied troops on the Western Front. So in this, this period of time, <laughs> they faced one fourth of the entire resistance of the whole war on the Western Front. <laughs> Also, to just make this even more of a nightmare, there was a recent addition to Canada's all-out war, chemical weapons. Uh, not only chlorine gas from earlier, but also the new popular chemical weapon, mustard gas. Mm -hmm. Mustard gas is a yellow gas that destroys the lungs just like chlorine gas, but it also causes blindness and burns and blisters on the skin. It's basically the worst version of chlorine gas. Right. Since the Canadian Corps were usually sent out in the first waves, they relied pretty heavily on gas attacks to soften up the enemy lines before going in. They were pretty unapologetic about it too, it seems. Uh, in fact, let me end off this story with a pretty wild quote from Canadian Corps Commander Sir Arthur Curry. He's talking about uh, German soldiers in this quote. Okay. Quote, we tried to make his life miserable. We never forgot that gas at the Second Battle of Ypres, and we never let him forget it either. We gassed him on every conceivable occasion, and if we could have killed the whole German army by gas, we would have gladly done so. So, yeah, you know, wow, yeah. I, I will fully acknowledge that uh, I think Canadians largely live up to the nice, friendly stereotype today. But back in World War One, something wild was going on. There they, was something they, in the water. They earned the stereotype. They they were mean for a while so that they could be nice now, you know? Yeah. You know, not to joke about it too much. They genuinely did like a bunch of really, really terrible. I mean, you know, executing prisoners who surrender. That's that's just like at its core, really terrible and also really terrifying to be fighting against. But like we said, Kurt, like we said, World War One, bad time for everyone involved. So 
Like, okay, yeah. Who wasn't committing atrocities in World War One? Me? That's true. And you know what? You wanna be you wanna be sad about all the crazy stuff Canada did? <laughs> Go to another podcast. This is the Bliss Podcast, okay? It's we're the we're in the Bliss about how yeah. weird and wild all the things Canada did yeah. was. <laughs> yeah, go go listen to actual history podcasts, not us. <laughs> what do you want to learn? That's not no. what we're doing over here. <laughs> Get out of here. Come on. Well, Kurt, since we're having a good time, I, I want to share with you some some interesting stories. This is a story that I, I didn't tell t- to you because I um, I was made fun of a lot last season. And, and typically when talking in this podcast, I'm, I'm constantly made fun of for a variety of reasons. But one of the main ones is that I, I, I tend to speak about Mexico a lot. That's true. That has long been a favorite. For, for the most part, I try, I've been trying to stake away, stray a little bit from the history of, of my own beautiful, lovely country and try to tell some other more <laughs> interesting and uh, exciting things from around the world, which, of course, impossible. No, nothing beats Mexico. Nothing but beats Mexico, baby. Nothing beats Mexico. So I've been kind of keeping some stories away from, from being told in this podcast. But now that it's a true tale. This is my time to shine, Kurt. So mm. as per usual, we're going to take it back to the greatest country in this planet. And that is, of course, the United <laughs> States of Mexico. Now, Kurt, I want to talk to you about uh, a very a very special man. His name was Salvador Diaz Miron. Okay. If you're a Mexican listener, you, that name already is, is a highlight to you. Because right now, Salvador Diaz Miron is no, well known as one of the, I guess, quote, best poets of last century, nice. of not just Mexican history, but Latin American history. Ooh. He's considered as the father of modernism in poetry, and he's considered essentially one of the greatest, like our modern iteration of Victor Hugo, if you will, or, or our modern Cervantes. He really is very well remembered for his poetry. Hmm. And I want to talk to you a, a little bit about him, because not only was he a poet, but he was a madman. Nice. Okay. Did he use chemical weapons? Uh, he, he did not use chemical weapons. <laughs> But I'll leave it up to you to, to decide whether or not he was a, a kind of wild, crazy guy. <laughs> so this man, first of all, the reason I really want to talk about him is because he was born in none other than the beautiful port city of Veracruz, Mexico in 1853. Oh, yeah, baby. The finest city in the greatest country on earth. Come on. You're so right. Center of the universe, the navel, the belly button. It brought you such famous things such as La Bamba and also me. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be the best place in the planet. That's like net zero gain for the world. Net zero goodness. Plus for La Bamba. Minus, minus for me. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a perfect net zero. You're right. But, you know, th- uh, this man was born 14th of December, 1853. Salvador Diaz Miron is his name. And he he started off his life. He was sent off to the seminary in the city of Jalapa. And he spent his formative years there. He started growing up. But when he came back at around 14 years old, he started being involved in journalism and he became a pretty active journalist correspondent in the port city of Veracruz. He should move to Mexico City. He should move to Mexico City and try (laughs) his luck in the big town. But he didn't, funny enough. He he went back to Veracruz and started being a journalist. I think you can start seeing why I like this man. Mm -hmm. Now, after some time there, much like it is today, being a journalist in Veracruz is very dangerous. So, around, around the time he was 16, he was the son of a pretty influential, also journalist, poet, and politician, actually a former governor of the state of Veracruz. So his dad said, 
hey, you're getting into really dangerous situations with your journalism. Go to school in the U.S. And he was <laughs> sent out to go to school in the U.S. for several years. After some time, he came back very well versed in English, in French. He knew some Latin, knew some Greek, of course, Spanish. Wow. You're going for a bingo there. Really is. An incredibly well-learned man. Uh, but he took a, a really big interest in writing and, and letters. And he loved, loved writing. Literature was his whole thing. His favorite artists, his favorite writers were Victor Hugo, as well as Miguel de Cervantes, but mostly Victor Hugo and French poetry in specifically. So in around 1874, he comes back to Veracruz and starts getting really big into poetry. So he gets back into poetry in 1874, 1876, around that time, which is a very important time or a good time to get into poetry because this is during the government of Porfirio Diaz, who was uh, one of like the longest reigning dictators in the history of Mexico, if not the longest dictator. Longest yet, Luis. Don't sell yourself short. You're right, Kurt. You're right. You know, I tend to do that. But Porfirio Diaz, was a big Francophile, so he really loved all the fine arts and tried to make Mexico France, which mm. is just really funny. He, he did his best, but nothing will ever turn us into France. But one of the things that he pushed was poetry. Of course, a man like Salvador Diaz Miron was huge into poetry, and he was able to thrive mm. not just as a journalist, but also as a poet. Now, some time goes on. He has been working for a newspaper for some while, and he actually gets pushed into politics by one of his friends. So he decides to run as a state representative in the local state congress, and he was a very temperamental man, okay? Okay. So it's 1870s Mexico in the Veracruz State Congress, and then you have this man with a big bushy mustache who loves guns and hunting, okay? Oh. And has a very short temper. He's like, I'm just here defending the Second Amendment, and they're like, what? What is that? And he's like, you wouldn't get it. <laughs> Takes a long what drive. What is the NRA? <laughs> Well, it's from his time in the U.S. that he loved guns and he fell in love with Western, I guess, ideals. I mean, the West is still a huge mm. thing in the U.S. at this point and comes back. And not only that, but he falls in love with these great French stories of old where you have these duelists that get together and duel to regain the honor that was lost by whatever action. So he said, I love duels mm. and I'm going to make that my entire personality. <laughs> it's not just a phase, mom. Not a phase. I'm a duelist. While he was a representative for the Veracruz State Congress in 1878, this man gets into a duel. No one really knows exactly why, but he gets shot in the arm, in the clavicle, and because of that, he is now unable to use his left arm for the rest of his life. That's okay. He still got his dueling arm. No, not only that, Kurt. He won the duel, lost the arm, but what did he gain? He said that now that he was unable to use his arm, he was able to empathize more with the great poets of old who he said quote are all crippled what yes because <laughs> lord, why lord byron didn't have a foot and miguel de cervantes <laughs> who was the author of don quixote he also did not have the ability to use one of his arms so he started dedicating poems and great odes to these great artists saying i am now one of you because i cannot use one of my extremities Nah, that see that's just him being a politician right there <laughs> well that's this is the type of guy that this guy was right mm, i see big bliss guy you know big bliss guy 
guy. He's just enjoying life, and especially now being a representative in the state congress. Mm. He's having a great time. He started, he was a, a big, wild, independent kind of guy, so he was kind of not terribly well-liked. Also, during his time in Congress, he was in the party that was opposed to the dictator. So, you know. Oh, no. That's never good. He didn't have really many friends. However, because of this attitude, he wasn't elected again, right? Mm. So in 1886, he stopped being a representative, uh, especially when Porfirio Diaz came back to the presidency and he said, okay, whoever's opposed to me, get out of here. However, the Veracruz governor said, no, guys, I vouch for this man. Vote for him for the state representative. And he goes back in about a year later as a state representative, but he couldn't keep his guns in his holster, Kurt, because it is said... (laughs) that in the halls of the Veracruz Congress, he pulled out his gun to almost shoot another representative and only missed, only missed because the other man was wearing a bowler hat. And so the the bullet went through the bowler hat (laughs) and not his head. So at that moment, he was voted out of Congress, naturally, and he was jailed, right? I think people just didn't understand this man's campaign strategy. He's like, look, I don't have the votes, okay? We did the math. (laughs) All right. right. I don't have the left arm. Okay. We did the math. I just got one of them. Right. Okay. Yeah. I request an election by duel, formal <laughs> request for election by duel, but they, they didn't understand that he was ready, ripping and roaring to get on that. However, Kurt, he had been doing duels his whole life. He only got expelled from Congress because he almost just directly shot another representative. That's what he gets from missing. You know, I bet, I bet that was the guy who was leading That's the charge to expel yeah. him. He should have hit him. <laughs> so during the presidency of Portfolio, Porfirio Diaz, the dictator, there was a controversy that Porfirio Diaz told the governor of Veracruz to kill a bunch of, of his political opponents, and it became big news, right? Porfirio Diaz tells the governor of Veracruz to kill his opponents for him. When this news comes out, Salvador Diaz Miron says, hey, governor of Veracruz, are you wanting to duel? <laughs> this is while he's a representative. Yes. And the governor says, oh no, I cannot do this because they're both public officials. Goward. But he publicly told the governor, let's duel. Also, he had already gone to prison in between terms as representative. <laughs> he just fit that in there. Well, a little off time, a little sabbatical. This is what happened. He apparently goes up to a man who allegedly hit him and he's like, I'm going to duel and kill you. <laughs> and he allegedly killed him with a gun, but this man died by being beat with a cane. However, oh. <laughs> whenever Salvador Diaz Miron said, oh, it wasn't me. Look at my cane. The cane was all disfigured, clearly having killed a man <laughs> with it. But somehow, what? somehow he managed to get out after about a year in prison because of, s- of self-defense. He alleged it was self-defense. So he did, then was, he did say it was him after all that. No, no, it was self-defense, Kurt. Come on. It's self-defense of an act that he didn't partake in. What? Right. I also want to say, I, I, I'm not I'm not sure this man understands that a, a duel is a, it's a two-party thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think he's just walking up to people and saying, like, I'm going to duel you. <laughs> yeah. And then another another situation, he also dueled this famous man. He went up to this man who, again, was a, a Mexican, generally kind of famous politician as well, with the last name Migoni, Manuel Maria Migoni. And they had the duel, and this man only won, or only survived, because he was shot in the chest, but that's where he kept his wallet. <laughs> 
the fat stacks blocked yeah, it. Fat stacks blocked the bullet, and he kept surviving. This man dueled any opportunity he got. <laughs> His wife, at one point, comes up to him and says, hey, man, stop dueling. Come on. I don't blame her, dude. She's, like, in the kitchen washing dishes and breaks a glass, and he's like, get the six-shooter. We're doing it. Come on. And whenever he was told by his wife to stop dueling, he just recounted his, at that point, already kind of famous poem. He should have tried to duel her over it. <laughs> no, he quoted himself. He quoted what? a poem that he had written, which was kind of a little a little well-known at the time by saying, um, and let me try to translate this. It's like, don't try to convince me of these idiot ramblings that your crazy mind says. My reasoning <laughs> is intact and firm. Firm and light that bounces off of a crystal. And like he said that to his wife to essentially said, no, let me duel. Come on. Okay. What if it had been like super specific? Like what if he was like, let me quote from you out a poem. It is a poem he wrote about his wife previously asking about it. He's like, right. when my wife asked me not to duel, it makes me very sad. It is not good. Right. And and the thing is, this man could not keep himself from dueling. That's all he knows. Because he also like had this, had this guy who was a, a friend of his who he used to have friendly duels with that he would do out in public so that people would see what a quote real duel is like what a what a cool guy he is yeah he would essentially do like show duels with his buddies to impress people <laughs> but in 1895 he killed a man actually this was not a duel this was just straight up a straight up murder of this man called Federico Walter he didn't announce it ahead of time no he didn't he didn't no there was no <laughs> a second party but uh, allegedly this li- this man who was just 25 years old mind you he allegedly insulted and hit Diaz Miron with a cane oh we're back at it with the canes it's always the cane. And at this point, Salvador Diaz Miron allegedly exclaimed one of his most famous faces, who says, He who yells at me, I hit. He who hits me, I kill. So... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. Laying it all out for you. Those are the options. Because of this, he spent five years in prison. This is when he wrote his best poetry. Some of his most famous poetry was while he was in prison. And some of these prison letters were actually published in uh, the U.S. and also in Paris. So he was kind of well-known across the world as a, as a poet. Mm-hmm. Also a duelist and a murderer. But, you know, at this point... <laughs> all in a day's work. After Porfirio Diaz left power, he came back into public life because the president, the interim Mm. president said, you're fine, man, come out here. (laughs) And during the revolution, he actually supported this government that set up a coup, a coup d'etat against like the famous Mexican presidents. So he was against against the revolutionaries, if you will. But once that other dictator that also served power after the coup, after he served his reign, he said, nah, I can't stay in this country. And he left to Cuba and Spain for years. After some time, the president gave him permission to come back to Mexico and he's like we'll, we'll receive you as a as a hero's welcome he's like no don't want any of that let <laughs> me just come back to Veracruz and live out the rest of my days and so Salvador Diaz Miron comes back does not get involved in public life anymore he's not in, uh, in politics anymore he just spends all his day drinking going to the park and writing poetry hey that's the highlights right there hang on it's a good time and not only that but he becomes the the head of the schoolmaster of the Veracruz prep school teaching history and and other sort of literature as well. And that's how he spends the majority of his life. However, in 1928, after having lived just a long, long life mm-hmm. in the in, in Veracruz, one of his students challenged him to a fight because he was <laughs> not happy with like a result he got. Okay. Okay. To which Salvador Diaz Miron took out his gun and hit him with the butt of his gun. <laughs> 
Hey, at least he's learned not to shoot. Yeah, this man beat his student, his own student, a kid of like 17 years of age Ooh. because he was challenged. <laughs> However, few days later, uh, Salvador Diaz Miron fainted and a couple days later <laughs> died. So <laughs> that was the last. Interesting. The last thing he did was beat up a child and died. <laughs> and just as, a, as an epilogue of this, of this man who, uh, after his death, he was actually presented as a national hero. And he currently is buried in one of the most famous cemeteries in Mexico, uh, in a place reserved to only notable Mexican history, along with like precedents and things of the sort. They forgive him for the child beating. Yeah, yeah. They forgive him for the child beating and the actual murder of different people. <laughs> right. But this man who hit him, his name was Gustavo Ulibarri. Okay. The kid. Yeah, the kid. Later became an orthodontist, and he used to brag about this moment in his life when he was beat up by the great Salvador <laughs> Diaz Miron. But if we think about it, Kurt, or if I think about it, Ulibarri is a last name that is in my family. So I am probably distantly related to the man who was beat up by Salvador Diaz Miron, the dueling poet and the most famous <laughs> poet of Mexican history. So... Congrats. Hey. That's big, dude. Listen. Was that in the 23 and me? Uh, who knows? But, you know, my own <laughs> my own guesses tell me that I'm somehow distantly related to Yeah, because hey, we don't even know. We're just like, you know, we're all in on the bliss. We're living in a magic in a more magical world, Kurt, like we said. So true. That's all we could ask for. And that's all we have. <laughs> that's all we have. And that is indeed all we have, Kurt, because that brings us to the end of this story. And I think that's the end of the episode. But I think you have one quick thing for for us uh, a special surprise yeah as i was gonna say don't don't be trying to don't be trying to get out of here too quickly because mm. it's in addition to it being the end it is also the end of season two which means someone's got to be punished someone's got to be crowned king yeah and since the score is 10 to 5 i am the winner Luis is the not winner we will have to decide you know we we're this is a waste not want not podcast so we mm. like to roll mm. our punishment reward into one so Luis is gonna have to buy uh, a prize a gift for me if you will yeah. and the budget of that gift is going to be decided by this quiz so the budget starts at a hundred dollars i have 10 <laughs> trivia questions for Luis about season two for every question Luis gets right ten dollars goes off the budget so Luis, if you get all ten of them right i guess i'm getting a, a wink and a smile if i'm lucky for my yeah. gift and if you get none of them right uh Good luck. <laughs> See, the worst part, the worst part thing about this, Kurt, is that I, I full, I'm, I've agreed to this, right? This is something we've both agreed to. Mm. The The only problem is that I, I always forget that I do live in Mexico. So $100 is a good chunk of money in Mexican that's pesos. That's true. That's true. Are we doing $100 or 100 pesos? No, we're doing $100, <laughs> Kurt. I, I don't fear. I don't fear anyone. I think this is what I've earned after, after doing this for a year. So let's get on with it. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Okay. Question number one. Luis. Why were Terrar's parents forced to kick him out of the house at the age of 12? I know this, Kurt, because he could eat his whole body, his whole body weight in meat, and it was not sustainable anymore for his poor parents. It was not sustainable. Not no, sustainable No, yeah, when Terrar was age 12, he was eating about a fourth of a cow, his own body weight in beef on a daily basis, which they could not afford, so they kicked him out. Classic. All right, down to $90. Hey okay, question number two. What was the name of the fictitious cabaret run by bohemian trendsetter Jan Roditz? 
Oh, I wrote this story, didn't I? You did. And you actually uh, said in the podcast that you weren't going to try to pronounce the name in whatever native language, even though it's a made up place. <laughs> so the only name you ever gave was in English. So you can give me the, the in English name because I think that's the only one that exists. Oh, my goodness, Kurt. These are the worst. I'm telling your own, you. From your own mind. From my words own that you mind. once wrote on paper. Oh, God. Was it like the pink unicorn? Is that what you're going with? Yeah. It was the broken raccoon. Oh. Oh, yes, it was. But the pink unicorn is good, too, you know? You can keep that in your back pocket for a future story. All right, still at $90. Question number three. Who was Foul Weather Jack? And let me clarify here because I told you two fictitious stories yeah. that had a character named Foulweather Foul Jack. Weather lineage. So I'm not I'm not asking you about my made up Foulweather Jack. Who is the real person? Who is the real one? Oh. Who's the real Foulweather Jack? Oh, Kurt, I don't even remember. Oh no. <laughs> You're oh. like, I don't even remember the fake ones. I don't <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I remember the first Foul Weather Jack was a pirate, if I recall correctly. I don't know if you can tell me this. No, the first Foul Weather Jack was a was a World War One soldier at Georgie's last big bash, the uh, oh. Prohibition protest party. Yes, you're and so- the second Foul Weather Jack was a pirate hunting privateer who had some yeah. pretty wild interrogation techniques, right. such as salting pirates and leaving them in the sun to be cured like salami. Oh my goodness! But who is the real Foul Weather Jack? There's a, I got. There's a lot of info I told you about him. So if you can tell me just one piece of information, I'll I'll give it to you. His name, his job, or any big piece of information about him. His name, Kurt? Okay, I I just remember. Okay, I'm gonna gonna go with my gut here. And I'd say that Foul Weather Jack, Mm -hmm. the real one, Mm -hmm. was the pirate, right? He was a pirate who was given the name Foul Weather Jack because he always seemed to encounter foul weather. (laughs) Oh... I'll give you half a point, Luis. So Foulweather Jack was not a pirate. His name was John Byron. He was a British Royal Naval officer and explorer and grandfather of the famous poet Lord Byron. Oh. But he did have the name Foulweather Jack because he had a habit of running into bad weather. So we'll go down to $85 okay. on the I'll budget. Take it. All right. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah. That... Gotta, gotta take what you can get, okay? A win is a win is a win. A win is a win. Question four. Name one strange makeup ingredient in the inventory of fictitious French beauty connoisseur Jean-Henri oh. Bonnet, whose name in English is, of course, John Henry the Hatmaker. John Henry Hatmaker. Yeah. Well, of course, hippocampus blood, baby. Hippocampus blood. That one's right there for the taking. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Hippocampus blood. You could have also told me mercury, red lead, or crushed insects. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. The, the best. <laughs> yeah. You know, all the food groups covered. Okay. Down mm-hmm. to 75. Question number five. Serbian spy and playboy Dusko Popov tried to warn the U.S. government that Pearl Harbor would be attacked. Why wasn't he able to? Oh, I remember this. Oh, shit. Your own story, once yes, again. Yes. True story this time. Wasn't it because, okay, okay, I, th- I think I remember this. This is because uh, J. Edgar Hoover didn't trust him because he was too much of a sensual man. Yes, he told J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> that he had intel that Pearl Harbor would be attacked. And J. Edgar Hoover, you know, vibe checked him and was like, this guy is not reliable and didn't tell anyone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> incredible story he's like this man is is too sexy this man is is too crazy there's no way he's telling the truth a man who who would i don't know if he already had or would go on to inspire the character of james bond jared Grimm took one look at him and was like no this guy's not a reliable no, source no no what was the what was the adjective used to describe him moving there's like he he moved in a in a sleazy yet calm <laughs> he manner he moved wrong for jay and <laughs> 
Could, was it conducted his business in a loose, easy manner? Was that loose, what it was? easy manner? That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. You, said, you said put loose, that on my tombstone. Man. Conducted my, his yeah, business exactly. in a loose, easy manner. Exactly. Oh man. All right, down to sixty-five dollars on the budget, Luis. Question number six: Swedish balloon enthusiast Solomon Andre planned to make history by being the first person to use a hydrogen balloon to do what? Oh man. My man had a big balloon filled with hydrogen, yeah, and he had balloon. a dream. What was he going to do? Was it that he was trying to cross the Atlantic? Wait, wait, wait. No, hold on, hold on, because this was an Arctic balloon. So was he trying to cross the Arctic circle, I guess? Yeah, I'll give it to you. His He was going to float over the North Pole. So okay. his plan was to take off somewhere from Sweden, yeah. float up directly over the North Pole, and then descend in Alaska or Russia, somewhere on the other side. He did also previously have a plan to float across the Atlantic Ocean, but that one never got anywhere. <laughs> but you got that one. Okay, we're on to $55 on the budget. Right on. Number seven. Name one person who tested the mystery meat that reigned on a Kentucky town in 1876. Oh, do I have to name names? Name, yeah, give me one name. Oh, no. I made these up, didn't I? Oh, shoot. No, this is a true story. Oh, from the meat shower. Yes, you're so right. You're, this is a true story that you researched and told to me. <laughs> oh, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Dude, that's crazy. Are you kidding me? That was real? You guys believe that? Well, I remember there was a butcher. There was a butcher. There was a butcher and there was a, a guy who I think was like a Scottish or Irish immigrant or uh, Jimmy McDougal or something like that. No, there was there was a but, there was a butcher uh-huh. uh, who tried it. And then there was a guy who tried it was like, oh, that's bear meat for sure. There's bears up in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, and then uh-huh. there was a guy named Jimmy Welsh who did a lot of dancing around claiming he was going to try it, but Welsh. never ended up trying it. So I'll, right. I'll eliminate Jimmy Welsh from the list for you. So what do you got? And you got any other names rattling around in there? No, nah, I said Jimmy McDougal. That's as far as I got. I don't even know where I'm even getting the name from. <laughs> All right. Well, you could have said the the butcher's name, Elsie Frizz, and our Elsie. bear meat enthusiast, Joe Jordan. Oh. Two men who you would Two definitely men. guess would try mystery meat that fell from the sky. Oh, For yeah, sure. Baby. For sure. Okay. Still at $55. Luis, question number eight. Name one source of low background steel or lead. Wait. And of course, for the uninitiated, low background steel is steel that does not have background radiation that was caused initially by the first test detonation of a nuclear bomb, Trinity. Low background lead is, of course, lead that also does not have any background radiation because it has been mined from the earth for so long that it's lost all of it. See, Kurt, I actually was researching or was looking at our previous episodes in preparation for this episode. Actually, not not going through them, just reading the titles. I got to this title, Kurt, uh, Dystopian Treasure Hunt and Georgie's Last Big Bash. Mm-hmm. I read that title and I remember Georgie's Last Big Bash. I had absolutely no recollection of a dystopian treasure hunt. And I started <laughs> listening to it. And I heard myself being very lucid and sane, responding to what you were saying. So I, couldn't it have been me. Who knows? Who knows? Who you were it was. playing the harp on that episode. I know. I'm. I am. <laughs> I, I, I'm little by little losing my mind. But okay, one of the sources of low background steel or lead or lead, if I recall correctly, is it from like sunken ships, perchance? You got gonna have to be more specific than that, my friend. Oh, um. 
sunken ships during World War One. Yeah, we'll take it. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. So right. low background steel has been taken from ships that were sunk during World War One. Low background lead has been taken from slingshot ammo on sunken ships from Julius Caesar's time. Awesome. Low background lead's also been taken from old sewer pipes under Boston, and I believe it was low background steel they got off some sunken Spanish ships that sunk in a big hurricane way back in the day. Uh, so that's why you had to be more specific on the boats, but but you got it. I'm very glad that I didn't go with my first instinct. I'm like, space, <laughs> meteorite. <laughs> we got it. Okay, down to 45. Question number nine. In the fictitious history of Jackpot, Nevada, what creature of the night terrified drunk tourists and later inspired a cryptocurrency? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, it was a dog. A big, big dog. Mm -hmm. A big, big black dog. Black. Uh, it had black in the name. Black. Uh, Winnie, Black Winnie. It was Black Winnie. Yeah, wow. I would have taken yes. Big Black Dog. It was large black Great Dane named Black Winnie that yes. terrified people who saw him at night and then later inspired a stupid awesome. cryptocurrency. Okay, $35. Last question, Luis, number 10. Captain John Franklin was chosen to lead an expedition through the Northwest Passage in 1841 despite his embarrassing past. What nickname had Captain Franklin been given from his previous mishaps? Oh, uh, that is... Was not a very catchy nickname, but it was a very descriptive one. Oh, no. I don't, I don't remember. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna tell you a name and hopefully yeah, I get it kind of close, <laughs> close. Guess. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, Bent Sawtooth Blade John. Did you look that up? No. No, that's not it. I'm kidding. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> No, no, that would have been that would have been wild though. No. Captain John Franklin's nickname was the man who ate his own boots because he and his men right. had only survived a previous expedition by eating algae and the leather from their own boots. Classic. So that's that, Luis. $35 on the budget for my glorious prize for winning season two. And now that's one win for me on season two, and you that's won true, season yeah. one also by a pretty crushing margin. So that's true. I guess we're gonna have to break the tie in season three. Oh my goodness. And if and if season two took a year and a bit oh see you in 2027 for season three's end <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is what we've i mean i feel like we've said this a million times but we have created our own personal purgatory but i, I enjoy it as much as i hate it so here we are season three coming your way baby <laughs> <laughs> well be be ready for season three everyone hopefully it's gonna be good we'll be back with lots of fun everybody if you want more content from the episodes pictures and such follow our social medias we're on twitter at unbelievable pc instagram at unbelievable pod and if you like the podcast leave us a review tell people about it anything helps okay thank you everyone that's everything and remember on this podcast ignorance is bliss emphasis on the bliss big kiss big hug big bliss all the time bye y'all bye everyone bye everyone